Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Another episode of Redeemed Through His Blood. Scott Durfee here, joined with, uh, as always, by David Durfee. Brother, how you doing, David? Good. I'm so good, Scott. Thankful for this time of year, new resolutions. Have you broken your new resolutions already? Not all of them. Not all of them. Just well, most of them. Maybe I have broke all of them. I'm not sure, but <laughs> I'm well on my way. That's for sure. It's not a goal. That's not one of them. Just so you know. But uh, but uh, you know, I do. Good time to examine your life and yeah. review the past. You know, like I kind of started a new thing. Wished I would have done this. I wish I would have started this when I was in the mission field. But um, write down a few lessons you learn every year. You know, so I've, I've, you know, last several weeks been thinking about what lessons have I learned for 2023 I want to take going forward so I either don't make the same mistakes or so that I can remember a few things I did right that I can remember those. I wish I would have been doing that for the last uh, 70 years. Well, <laughs> the best they say the best time to plant a tree was seventy years ago. The next best time today. is now. Yeah, yeah. There you so go. just start today. Good, that's, good advice. That's all we can do. Well, yeah, yeah this is a, a time when we you know start thinking about those things, or at least you know we should. I I, I have a friend. Uh, he called me. This would have been fifteen or twenty years ago. He called me. He says, "Do you have any resolutions set?" And uh, I was in recovery, you know, and my mind was working around how do I make my life better and different things like that. When I say recovery, I was in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and this friend was too. And he says, what are your New Year's re- resolutions? I says, I don't even set those. Those are just premeditated failures for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've changed since yeah, then. I, I, I've totally changed my thoughts since then. You know, they're not premeditated failures. They're, they're, they give me guidance and direction and and things to uh, maybe even check my life against as I go along, and they're a lot more important. So all that's important. Well, hey, Scott, even uh, <laughs> even failure is the only way, right, to succeed. In fact, I I wrote this down the other day. You know, Walt Walt Disney had something to say about that. Oh, yeah, about failure. About failure. Yeah, he did. You know, he says. Uh, well, this is Walt Disney, then Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways it won't work. Exactly. <laughs> I heard that just the other day. And Walt Disney said, the difference between winning and losing is mostly not quitting. The difference between winning and losing is most often not quitting. Yeah. And uh, anyway. Well... You know, Babe Ruth held the record for a quit. while for the most strikeouts and the most home runs, and you know, and, and on it goes. It's, it's just a matter of how we, how we view things. I, how I we think see the, things. you know we live in a culture of uh, fear of failure, yeah. and uh, I, I think uh, maybe myself and a lot of other listeners, maybe maybe we didn't even set resolutions because we're afraid that we're not going to keep them. Why should I set resolutions when I know I'm not going to keep? Yeah, them? that was my it's point like, to yeah, my friend, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's just a that's just a fear of failure, yeah. And it it holds us back, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. It keeps us from progressing the way we could. Well, it or it, should. It, yeah, I've done I've done a lot of thinking about that fear of failure thing because you know I mean I don't know about you, but I, I feel like that's been something that's been a struggle of mine for much of my life is fear fear of failure. But but as I've done some 
self-work on this, and I'm continuing to do it. I'm no guru on this. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I know no, you know that, I David. I know you I, know I that. I have a lot to learn on this too, Scott. <laughs> I know you know that, but for our, just so that you know, we don't cast any dispersions among our <laughs> listeners here. Um, but, but for me, you know, failure uh, and the fear of failure, uh, it, it's, it comes from my fear of comparison. Uh-huh. Yeah, fear of comparing to somebody else or fearing com- fear of comparing to a benchmark mm-hmm. even or you know because you know what's failure failure is your inability to reach a benchmark your inability yeah. to you know meet expectations in somebody's eyes and it's always by comparison comparison's the thief of joy we know that right right and, and that's how that's right. how it, that's how it robs us of our joy is yeah. through comparison you know i see myself as a failure <laughs> and pride is the source of all that <laughs> exactly yeah. You know, pride is the source. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, know, you know, somebody said, I don't want to be rich. I just want to be richer than other men. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's because how do you measure rich? What is rich? I know. What is rich? Rich that's, is nothing unless you have something to compare it to. You know, Elder, or not Elder, President Hinckley, President Hinckley said one of the greatest, he gave a whole talk on this, one of the greatest sins of uh, our culture and our generation is the sin of coveting. Yeah. And coveting is comparison. Yeah. Really. That's one of the seven deadly sins. Right. And, and uh, he, he gave a whole talk on that is stop coveting, stop comparing, stop uh, wanting more and more and to be better and better and best in all that we do. So I don't know, Scott. Uh, <laughs> fear is, uh, is so connected to our insecurities so, and our pride, and oh we've goodness. talked about fear enough on this podcast, but perfect love casteth out all fear, and I believe that love that, uh, you know, that we should pray with all energy of heart for the love of the Savior, and if we had charity, I, I just, and that would include loving ourselves, seeing ourselves the way God sees us, I think that's charity. Um, we wouldn't uh, be so worried about uh, us, how we appear to others. Yeah, you're right. We would only be concerned about how God sees us. And uh, if we could see how he sees us and the love that he has for us, you know, again, that takes off more pressure and stress and anxiety from our life. It removes all of that. We're in the middle of talking about the events of the atonement of Jesus Christ, and uh, it's always a humbling uh, experience for us, I know, and hope it'll be humbling to our listeners. I want to begin today by just uh, Elder Gong in April of 2020 conference quoting President Nelson. So here you you have a prophet quoting the prophet. It's always good when you got a prophet quoting the prophet. That always just my antenna goes up, and I want to really get that. Anyway, President Gong, April 2020, said, President Russell M. Nelson teaches that Jesus Christ came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. I think that's a kind of a sweet way of understanding the suffering, atonement, of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to pay a debt he didn't owe because he was sinless. We've talked about that. Because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. We couldn't pay 
I just think that's a sweet way to kind of describe or define the atonement of Jesus Christ. And today, we've talked about number one, the sinless life, and number two last week, Gethsemane. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about, well, I don't know if excited is the word, but uh, anxious, I guess, more anxious. I, nothing, I, I don't know, that's... These are not exciting things to talk about because they kind of are humbling and it makes me contemplate where where do I stand in all of this and what pain did I cause him and there, there's nothing exciting about that but no but but there's but there's there's a lot of solace that comes from it it may not be exciting but the answer to all of our problems is what we're talking about and uh, and when we talk about the answer to all our problems i'm i'm not sure what adjective i would use either but i can i do tell you that it brings me a sense of peace that is really unmatched by any other subject gratitude's probably the definitely the best gratitude gratitude yeah. is the best word to describe it uh, we're doing better scott as a church in uh, i think describing what happens on the cross and the importance of the cross and what happens on uh, calvary golgotha uh, because I I think that as a church for many years, I was sensitive to this, definitely felt it 10, 20 years ago, that we just really as a church underappreciate the cross and uh, what it really does symbolize. I know, I know why we don't display it. I understand that, and I totally sustain and support what's been said about that, that uh, our symbol is is not the the death of Christ, but uh, it's the uh, the living Christ is the symbol of our faith. That's President Hinckley. Others have talked about how we're not going to display the instrument of Christ's death, and we're going to celebrate his resurrection and uh, the newness of life that he represents. I, I get that, and I, I also understand, you know, many years ago, better understood that the Catholics and other religions, Greek Orthodox and others, you know, that they, they would pray through the cross. They would, uh, it became kind of something of a symbol of power and kind of magical. Yeah. Well, uh, they, 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 they gave it its own, its own power. It's, yeah. uh, it's it, this innate object. They, they, they have given it and, and did give it. And I got to be careful because I'm definitely not an authority on this, but I do love the book by John Hilton called Remember the Cross, right? And he talks a little bit about this in there. But, you know, but, but they did give it, uh, you know, more authority than, than, than what happened on the cross. I mean, we pray, if you think about it from a symbolic reasoning, right? A lot of what we do, we do through the cross, but we don't do it physically through the cross. We do it because of what happened on the cross. And because of what happened on the cross, we can say that we do it through the cross, but that's, there's, there's a, a big difference right there, Dave. Yeah. It kind of, it just kind of became a, an image, a false yeah. image yeah. of uh, almost, almost an, worship and an, uh, idol, an idol almost. Yeah. And, uh, so I understand why why we don't display it and all of that, but I think in the process of that we we just under we under appreciated under taught um, what really happened there and I, I mean it's Elder Talmage taught it Elder McConkie taught it that 
the cross and what happens on the cross, not so much the cross, but the crucifixion and, and not even the nails or the crucifixion, but what happened on the cross from 12 to 3 p.m. is just uh, Gethsemane intensified. I mean, that's that, those are the words of, of Elder Talmage, that Gethsemane recurred intensified. Well, I don't think we've taught that very well, and I don't think that we've noticed. And I th- again, I think we're doing better. Um, you know, Brother Brother Hilton's book and others, including including our dear prophet President yep. Nelson. I mean, President Nelson just recently said, "Let me just read this." This is from October 2018. Jesus Christ chose to submit to the will of His Father and do something for all of God's children that no one else could do. Condescending to come to earth as the only begotten of the Father in the flesh, he was brutally reviled, mocked, spit upon, and scourged. In the Garden of Gethsemane, our Savior took upon himself every pain, every sin, all the anguish and suffering ever experienced by you and me and by everyone who has ever lived or will ever live. Under the weight of that excruciating burden, he bled from every poor. All of this suffering was intensified as he was cruelly crucified on Calvary's cross. Through these excruciating experience and his subsequent resurrection, his infinite atonement, he granted immortality to all and ransomed each one of us from the effects of sin on condition of our repentance. So one more time, the the line I have underlined, all of this suffering that began in Gethsemane was intensified as he was cruelly crucified on Calvary's cross. And again, it wasn't so much the nails, but it's the spiritual death and the aloneness, the isolation, the the press that reoccurred on the cross from at 12 noon when it goes completely dark. I mean, the earth goes dark and... And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We, we maybe should just again review, Scott, that after Gethsemane and his betrayal, that he, he goes through the mockery of a trial with the high priests and the, and the Sanhedrin, and he is spit upon, and he is slapped, and again, all of that would have been more painful because uh, he has been bruised by bleeding from every pore in Gethsemane. And then uh, when the, by the way, uh, it's several have made this point that the, the Sanhedrin and those who were so strict to obey the law were breaking the law. <laughs> you know, it's some really a mockery, really uh, hip, hypocritical that they're having a trial in the middle of the night, which is apparently against the law. In order, in order to uh, take him to Pilate, uh, as soon as the sun rises, they they take him over to the Antonio Fortress and and uh, dis- try to uh, prove that he has uh, committed treason and sedition, that he has claimed to be a king, that he's uh, claiming to be greater than Caesar, and uh, making all of these accusations. Uh, I mean, the Jews, they found him guilty of blasphemy, claiming that he was God. But they take him to Pilate and, 
and say that he should be crucified because he's calling himself a king and committing sedition and treason uh, by wanting to replace Caesar. And uh, Pilate, uh, of course, interviews him, can't find him guilty of anything, finds out he's from Galilee. He's a Galilean, so Herod's in town, and he takes him over to Herod, uh, has him uh, stand before Herod, and uh, Herod uh, asks him questions. Jesus won't even respond to Herod. This is the son of the Herod who had all the babies killed. This is uh, Herod who had uh, John the Baptist killed. Herod the Great and his sons that followed him were all all pretty bad guys, and Jesus doesn't respond to any of his questions. So Herod becomes frustrated, and, and uh, they strip him, put on a robe, and send him back to back to Pilate. And Pilate has a plan, and Pilate presents Barabbas, and uh, says you have a you have a law that every Passover you can let a prisoner go free, and and uh, they they chant Barabbas. They want Barabbas to go free, not Jesus. And then they begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him. I know this was mostly led by the Sanhedrin and Jewish leaders, but I'm sure that others kind of got caught up into this mob mentality. And so uh, Pilate, under the pressure of being unpopular or not getting along with the Jews, turns him over to the Jews, and and, uh, before doing that, has him scourged. That in and of itself would kill some people. And again, keep in mind, Jesus has bled from every pore, so he's completely bruised when he's scourged, making that pain even more intensified, exponentially intensified, I believe. And then uh, has has the cross laid on his back, and collapses and uh, Simon uh, carries it the rest of the way and by 9 a.m. by 9 a.m. they're at Golgotha Calvary and they they uh, lay him down upon the cross and and uh, nail him to the cross with uh, five nails two in his hands two in his wrists which to Latter-day Saints becomes really significant if you think of the temple and I think about the crucifixion every time I perform a live marriage because of how it takes place and his couples kneel at the altar. One nail is driven through both of his feet. One foot's laid on top of the other, kind of the method of crucifixion. So two nails in his hands, two nails in his wrists, one in his feet. I don't know why, but every time I see the number five, Almost every time I see the number five, I think of that, five nails. That all becomes pretty important when we think about the temple ordinance and the uh, signs and tokens and all of that. And I just uh, know that the bitter cup, the bitterest of the cup, was on Calvary, Scott. And uh, he makes some statements. He's, by the way, uh, crucified between two thieves which means that he would, uh, you know, die among transgressors. So many parts the atonement of Jesus, the events of the atonement of Jesus Christ fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And this is another one of those, that he would be among the transgressors. And one of them uh, rails on him. I think that's a quote in the Gospels. Uh, While another kind of says, leave him alone, and Jesus makes a statement, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, 
which we know to mean uh, the world of the spirits, not necessarily paradise, but these two thieves would uh, would go to the world of the spirits. And he makes other statements. One of the most <clears throat> heart-wrenching for me, I think, is when he sees his mother, John, at the foot of the cross, and he says to... Uh, to John, behold thy mother, and he says to Mary, behold thy son. Kind of gives some charge to John to help take care of Mary, to watch over Mary. And uh, there were probably other individuals there, but when it goes dark, I don't know how many stick around. At 12 noon, when it goes completely dark, he makes the statement, he cries out to his father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, and this is when really all hell breaks loose. Uh, I think where really all of the all of the sins and the sufferings of Gethsemane are again pressed upon him. But this time, Scott, this time there's no angel to strengthen him, even uh, according as he states it, even his father has left him. And Elder Scott says something about that, that no doubt God was aware and God was there and God was watching his son. But but the father knew that Jesus had to fill all of this and go through all of this, and he had to do it alone in order to really pay for all of the sins and all the sicknesses and all the sufferings and all the sins of all the world. He couldn't, the father couldn't buffer it, and even his uh, spirit, any strength or, or presence could not be there to assist, assist Jesus Christ, even though I'm sure the Father uh, painfully was aware of it. I, I think if we were with a group of people right now and we were sharing this, I would invite everybody to just be quiet for a minute and just let that soak in. Uh, because there's so much there, David, you know, and I'm going to go back. I actually want to go back and kind of bring bring to light and maybe even shed light on a few of these experiences that were there. But but as we as we do this, I really I really invite us all to open our hearts, open our minds and allow the spirit to testify to us, if we will. Not just the truthfulness of these things, but the power behind each of them and how we can uh, relate to these experiences. For example, and the first one that I kind of want to point out is in Matthew 27, 22, where Pilate has Jesus and Barabbas. And, you know, incidentally, and I think this is a good time to point this out, too. Barabbas, actually, the name Barabbas um, is is a little bit interesting because, you know, in that uh, culture, bar means son of. Right. right, and Abba means Father. Right, uh, and we, and we actually saw Jesus uh, call F- Heavenly Father Abba, in in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, where he cries out to him. Correct, uh, and and so we know that it's not just doesn't just mean Father, but it's a very intimate uh, uh, pronoun of Father. In other words, you you said it, Daddy. You know, so here's Barabbas, the son of the Father. Uh, again, gets to be set free because of what happens on the cross with Jesus Christ. And and that in and of itself is a, there's a lot of symbolism there that I get to look at. You know, where am I evil? Where am I rebellious? Where am I? And and even though I don't deserve it, there's, I've done nothing just like Barabbas did, nothing to deserve that being set free because of what was about to transpire. He was nonetheless set free. I, I think that's, that's an interesting application. But what I really wanted to point out was what Pilate said. 
He saith unto them in verse 22 of Matthew 27, what shall I do with this Jesus who is, which is called Christ? And I just want to stop right there. That's a question we all should be asking ourselves. Yeah. And we should ask ourselves that on a very regular basis. You know, at the very least, that that question or a form of that question by way of our own inventory, by way of our own introspection, by way of what our own revelation or inspiration that's being given to us. But we should take that experience or that opportunity every single week when we partake of the sacrament to ask ourselves that same question. What shall I do then? with this Jesus, which is called Christ? What shall I do with it? What shall right. I do with this Jesus that, was, that is called Christ? Will I allow his influence in my life to affect my week? Will I allow the week that's in front of me? You know, I'm talking about time here. Well, will, will I allow his influence to take care of my week? W-E-A-K, weaknesses too, you know? So what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? I think that's extremely important for us to understand. But then when he released Barabbas in 26, and when he had, they had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And, and we, we have to read this. The soldier of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Now, that's not, we think, you know, with that, if we don't have the full context of what has already happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, that, that uh, putting on of the scarlet robe, it means something, but it, we, we miss the poignancy of it because of the body bruised, right, and, and the bleeding from every pore. That would just include more excruciating pain being heap, heaped on him. Not only that, but the mockery of the scarlet robe. And then they plaited crowns of thorns, and they put it on his head, and a reed in his hand, and they bowed on a knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews." And, and so on it goes, you know, I invite our readers to participate or, or immerse themselves in that. And after they had mocked in verse uh, 30, and they spit upon him, as you mentioned, Dave, and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him and took the robe from him, they put on his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. It's important for us to, to immerse ourselves, not to just kind of take a, a you know, high-level surface view of what's taking place here. In order for us to really have the ability to understand and appreciate the gift that's given by the giver of the gift and to put on the atonement of Jesus Christ in the way it's intended for us to be put on or for us to put it on, we need to immerse ourselves in that experience and really understand what was happening there. And I, I think it's really critical, somewhat painful, to understand our role in all of this, Scott. You know, uh, when they made The Passion of Christ, when Mel Gibson made that movie, uh, the Jews were really upset. I mean, he got so many negative reviews because I, I guess the movie kind of made it look like the Jews had killed Jesus. And, the, of course, the Jews think the Romans killed Jesus. And anyway, there's always some discussion and back and forth about who killed Jesus. Well, Nephi, in 600 B.C., knew who was going to kill Jesus. And it's so interesting how Nephi describes this and views this. Nephi sees this. We, we know King Benjamin. We talked about how King Benjamin saw him bleeding from every pore before that ever occurred. Well, listen to, listen to how Nephi describes this in a couple of different places. In 1 Nephi chapter 19, Nephi writes... For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul, 
Others set it not, and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words, they set him at naught, and hearken not to the voice of his counsels. Verse 9, And the world, not the Jews, not the Romans, it was the world that killed Jesus. It was the world, it was our sins that caused Jesus to suffer. Listen again to verse 9. And the world, because of their iniquity, uh, that's you and me, Scott, that's that's us. They shall judge him to be a thing of naught. When we sin, when we sin, we judge Jesus and his suffering to be a thing of naught. Wherefore, they, the world, they scourge him, and he suffer it. And the world, they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they, the world, spit upon him, and he suffereth it. Because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. Ah, that those verses uh, always uh, always get me, and I think it's really helpful since we know that the. We'll talk more about this when we talk about the conditions of repentance. But part of the conditions of repentance is a broken heart and contrite spirit. And I don't, I don't know if there's many verses that are more heartbreaking or bring me more contrition than those verses, especially when it says we spit on him. We spit on him, we smite him, we scourge him. And then listen to this passage in First Nephi 11, which is the great chapter on the condescension of God, which we talked about a month ago when we talked about Christmas. God coming down and Nephi sees uh, Mary and the great condescension of God. And then this, this baby that's born to Mary grows up and, lists, and is healed, and there's miracles, and he refers to him as the Lamb of God. This is in 1 Nephi 11, verse 32. And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me again, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld the Lamb of God, that he was taken by the people. By the people. Yea, the Son of the everlasting God was judged of the world. Of the world. And I saw and bear record. And I, Nephi saw that he was lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. That's who he did it for, and that's it's the world and the sins of the world, Scott, that caused Jesus' suffering, not the Jews, not the Romans, but all of us have contributed to that. And, uh, and I'm really thankful that Again, the restoration and the scriptures make that really so much more clear, uh, describing again and over and over again that he did it for the sins of the world. And it, Jesus himself, when he, when he appears to the people in uh, the Americas, in Bountiful, later on after his crucifixion and after his resurrection in 3 Nephi chapter 11, it's so interesting to me how he chooses to introduce himself, Scott. 
of all the things that Jesus could say in introducing himself when he appears to the Nephites and the Lamanites in 3 Nephi 11, listen to how he introduces himself. 3 Nephi 11, starting with verse 10. I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and life of the world. And I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. I, I just think that's so interesting. Of all the things he could say about himself, he chose to inter- introduce himself as uh, partaking, drinking out of the bitter cup. I can think of the temple when I, every time I read that, the bitter cup. And uh, taking upon himself the sins of the world in which he has suffered. And then later, with his disciples, in Third Nephi chapter 27, he even gets a little more descriptive about his suffering and about his whole purpose and mission. And I think this is fascinating. He, he chooses, he chooses, Scott, in the scriptures, not to focus so much on Gethsemane. We have one account, one first-person account of his suffering in Gethsemane, which is in, uh, we read it last week, which is in Doctrine and Covenants, section 19. But six to one, seven to one, in the Doctrine and Covenants and throughout the scriptures, he chooses to focus upon the cross and upon his crucifixion. Again, because Gethsemane is only where it started, and it reoccurred and was intensified on the cross. Listen to what he says in 3 Nephi 27. And my father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. And after that I had been lifted upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father to stand before me to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And then he goes on and kind of describes the doctrine of Christ about faith and repentance. But he chooses to focus his disciples upon his suffering on the cross for all the sins of all the world. That's six times in the... uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, where he says, I was crucified. I was crucified for all the sins of all the world. So, Scott, what really happens on the cross, I just don't think, I, I know as excruciating as any crucifixion would be, you know, that most would die from sophistic, uh, suffocation because they couldn't catch their breath from the the pain or hanging there from nails and they're not able to really fill their lungs full of air. And anyway, they, then they could stay there for sometimes days on the cross before they would die. His was a very intense experience and it wasn't the crucifixion that killed him. It was his suffering for the sins of the world when he had paid the price, when all the demands of justice had been met that's when he declares at 3 p.m. So he's crucified at 9, makes some statements, 12 noon, it goes dark, 
All hell breaks loose. He cries out to the Father. And from 12 to 3, for three more hours, which is the same amount of time that he was in Gethsemane. He was in Gethsemane from 9 p.m. till midnight the night before. Now, from 12 noon until 3 p.m., all of in, all of Gethsemane is again pressed upon him, intensified. And by 3 p.m., he says, it is finished. And into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gives up the ghost. It's recorded. Uh, everyone, I think, is pretty shocked that uh, in less than just six hours, uh, Jesus is, is dead. But according to justice, according to the law of justice, he didn't need to suffer uh, an ounce more or a millimeter more than he needed to to pay to meet all the demands of justice, not only for the sins, but for all the negative effects of the fall in the history of the world upon all of the people of not just our world, but worlds. It's incomprehensible. It's impossible to conceive of uh, what he suffered. But we just want to remember every time we partake again of the sacrament as you as you ended our last podcast with, that uh, that torn piece of flesh, you know, that each individual bread is different, each individual was covered, each individual was suffered for in the suffering of Jesus. I, I want to read Elder, what Elder McConkie says. This is uh, from a conference talk, The Purifying Power of Gethsemane. This is the last talk he gave before he died, Elder McConkie, which is really powerful. People should go back and listen to that. April 1985, uh, he gives his final witness of Jesus Christ and his atonement. Then he talks about the three gardens, the, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. And it's one of the, I think, one of the classic talks of the Restoration, really. Anyway, he reads, the, With great mallets they drove spikes of iron through his feet and hands and wrists. Truly he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Then the cross was raised that all might see and gape and curse and deride. And they did. You know, all the gospel writers talk about how they, Mark and Matthew say, they, that people went by wagging their heads. And they, they challenged him, if you, if you be the Son of God, bring yourself off the cross, and the, the one thief. If you're the Son of God, save us. So they were, they were all deriding him, uh, you know, those who were not really truly his followers, and there aren't very many of those at this point of his uh, well, 33 and, years. And they were even being led by the chief priests, the chief priests in, in uh, Matthew twenty-seven forty-one. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Uh, so the mocking was, you know, not just from them. Well, they were being led was, by their leaders and everything else, too. He was so degraded. Yeah. So degraded, Scott. Here's this innocent, pure, virtuous, holy man. They strip him and hang him on the cross. And uh, I, I just can't imagine, you know. I mean, he 
he just suffered more than we can even begin to imagine, more than anyone could ever suffer. Worlds without end. Elder McConkey says, continues, Then the cross was raised that all might see and gape and curse and deride. This they did with evil venom for three hours from nine to noon. Then the heavens grew black. Darkness covered the land for the space of three hours, as it did among the Nephites. There was mighty storm as though the very God of nature was in agony. And truly he was. For while he was hanging on the cross for another three hours, from noon to 3 p.m., all of the infinite agonies and merciless pains of Gethsemane reoccurred. And finally, when the atoning agonies had taken their toll, when the victory had been won, when the Son of God had fulfilled the will of the Father in all things, then he said, It is finished. And he voluntarily gave up the ghost. No one killed Jesus, really, Scott. Jesus volunteered to give up the ghost. I think that's an important doctrinal point. No one could, no one could, no one did, no one could have ever uh, killed Jesus. He, after he had paid the price, after it was finished, the atonement, uh, his atonement was complete. Then he voluntarily gave up the ghost to uh, move on to maybe the the fourth and final step, which is his his resurrection which we'll talk uh, more about next time. So, uh, Scott, the crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ, uh, when we see a cross, um, I used to tell my students, you know, if you see somebody else wearing a cross, <laughs> you shouldn't be condemning them. You should just bow your head and get really humble and say thank you. I mean, when I see a cross... That's what I think. I don't, I, I mean, I just think for way too long uh, as a church, people, as, as an individual, I'll maybe just speak for myself, you know, uh, it, would, uh, it would bother me when I would see a cross or somebody wearing a cross or somebody displaying the cross and somebody had once given it, given the analogy, well, if he was killed with a gun, would we hang up a gun? And, and all of that's kind of silly because... Again, nobody or nothing killed Jesus. It, it, it was all voluntary on his part. Nobody could. When I see a cross now, I think of, I think of the five nails. I think of his crucifixion, of course. But more than that, I think of uh, Gethsemane. I think if there's any blood left, that that would have again uh, oozed through his pores. I I think of. Uh, my role in all of that, I think of the, all of the suffering, all of the sins, all of the sicknesses uh, that it pressed upon him uh, really from uh, noon on that Friday, Good Friday we call it, and the Christian world calls that Good Friday and good for us but bad for him. Uh, and, and all that happened there, I, I just... I just hope our listeners can better understand and uh, more humbly be grateful and express their gratitude. I think sometimes we've become a little bit of a Gethsemane church where we think Gethsemane 
is where he suffered for all of our sins. Well, that's where it started for sure. That's where it began, and that was where it was pretty terrible. But, uh, I mean, we sing about Gethsemane. Seems like we people seem to prefer sometimes the songs about Gethsemane than they do the cross. Uh, I know the cross is mentioned in several of our hymns, but it's clear reading the scriptures what Jesus chose to focus on, Scott. And, uh, and that, was, that was the cross. Uh, so I hope that uh, when we see it, that we'll just be more grateful when we think of it and remember it every Sunday when we partake of the sacrament that we'll try to uh, imagine that uh, we've talked about this before, Scott, that when he invites us to come unto him, you know, that means go to Gethsemane and try to to see that event with an eye of faith and try and see his, his suffering on the cross with an eye of faith and all that he did. When he dies, when he... It is finished, and he yields up the the ghost. The veil of the temple is rent. That heavy, singular um, veil, that heavy veil, is rent, cleaved, cleaved. I think it's so important. You know, the the Hebrews would talk about cutting a covenant and the blood involved in all of that, and that that renting, tearing, ripping of the Vell of the temple, I think, is so such a powerful symbol of what was uh, taking place. The the heart of Jesus being wrenched because of the spiritual death, all of the injustices and sins for which he suffered. So the and Scott, uh, more more important than all of the, those things, you know. We know. I know. You know. I know. Most of our listeners know by the power and the gift of the Holy Ghost, we know that that really happened. That's, that's a historical fact. It's a historical event. But more important than that, it's, uh, we've received a spiritual witness that he, that he did that not only for the world, but that the Holy Ghost has testified that he did that just for me. When we began our Christmas um, a, a part of the podcast here, one of our, I think, almost an entire podcast, we talked about the witnesses of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, and and, and they, that was a sweet experience for me to consider those that witnessed the birth and what would their ha- experience have been and what the, would their hope have been and all of that. I think that same thing uh, about the witnesses of the crucifixion. I wonder who all they would have been. You know, we do know we have an account of, of several who we know were there. We know Mary was there. We know John was there, um, and, and and maybe many others. You know, we know that there was uh, there were Romans there. Uh, we know uh, all of that. But but I think about that. You know, and my, my mind does this because I think. How do I make application for me? How do I how do I put myself in that spot on that day in that experience, and what can I glean from that um, participation in it, even if it is remotely, even if it is centuries, uh, millennia ago? And I think about that. You know, how would I have responded as I saw Jesus say to John, "Here's your mother, here's your son." 
you know, and, and take care of her, John. You know, do a good job, buddy. Don't mess it up. You know, please take care of Jesus my Jesus always thinking of others. Yeah. You know, and I, and, and I think of, you know, maybe some Romans. Uh, you know, we uh, there's a, a series out called The Chosen now, and in The Chosen there's a particular Roman who seems Centurion, to, John talks exactly, about Exactly, uh, who has, uh, you know, this, uh, this pull. You can feel the draw, the pull. I wonder how many of them felt that. You know, yeah. I, wonder, I, I wonder if those that were casting... Lots or those that were donning scarlet robes or even those that were, you know, had the handle of the cat of nine tails. I always wonder, did they feel something? You know, was there something different? And and there had to be. I, I just believe that there had to be. What I like to do in that is think, okay, what, how would I have responded and then how am I, how's my life modeled today after how I say I would have responded? Is my life congruent with the response that I declare that I would have had? I don't know that it is always. In fact, I know that it's not very frequently. And that's to that end, and this is the beauty behind that, to that end, he hung there so that I could be relieved of the burden of my own guilt, of feelings of inadequacy and and. Uh, just not being able to do what he was able to do for me, which was absolutely, in eternity, the most important event. I've always been touched by Elder Boyd K. Packer's description of uh, the suffering of Christ many years ago in the April 1988 conference. Elder Packer said, Upon him, Jesus Christ, was the burden of all human transgression, all human guilt, He, by choice, accepted the penalty for all mankind, for the sum total, the sum total of all wickedness and depravity, for brutality, immorality, perversion, corruption, for all addictions, for the killings, the torture, and the terror, for all of it that ever had been or all that ever would be enacted upon this earth. In choosing, he faced the awesome power of the evil one, who was not confined to flesh, nor subject to mortal pain. He faced the awesome power of the evil one. Uh, I mean, completely guiltless, and yet felt the full force I think, of spiritual darkness and death uh, and lived for several, three hours through through that. I, it's just, uh, it's incomprehensible. And uh, so I hope our, I hope our understanding and gratitude can increase as we uh, contemplate what Jesus did for each of us. I love what Elder Renland said about uh, the atoning sacrifice. He performed the atoning sacrifice not just because he submitted his will to the will of the Father, but also out of love for us, his pure love, an attribute called charity. You know, he did it not just because he's obedient. He did it out of pure love. His uh, Elder President Nelson's made a big word of the word, Hebrew word, hesed, hesed, his loving kindness. 
that was the the key to his motivation was his hesed and uh and I'm thankful for that another another point I think we should make uh in regards to uh Gethsemane and the cross both is that when he is suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross um Mosiah in Mosiah 15 Abinadi says that he saw his seed I I th- I think that's really interesting that uh, some of the brethren have taught that in uh, again this is incomprehensible and only a god with only a god is this even possible but that when he is suffering that he sees who he is suffering for and maybe what he is suffering for in his suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross he saw me and he saw you and he saw your pains and he saw your sins and your sicknesses and he saw mine and he saw all that he needed to see to know exactly not just feel it not just feel it but it became personal the the atonement of Jesus Christ is not just infinite elder maxwell but it is intimate it's intimate and i think in order for it to be intimate that he did see me and he did see you and he saw our weakness and he saw our sins and he saw our pains and our afflictions all of which he suffered for that they might be consecrated for our gain that there might be beauty out of ashes i love the the whole description that uh, isaiah gives of jesus and his mission which Jesus chose, these are the very, this is the very passage that Joseph, that Jesus, that Jesus read in Nazareth when it was his turn to read and when he announced his, his calling as the Son of God and the, the Savior of mankind, the Messiah. When he was asked to read, this was the passage he chose to read, which maybe is a perfect uh, description of uh, not just his not just his role, but uh, the the results and the consequences of his uh, mission and his role. So this is Isaiah 61, Scott. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them, this is verse 3, Isaiah 61, I love this, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Uh, I love that. And I also love Isaiah's description, uh, again quoted by Abinadi, right, of the uh, suffering of Jesus Christ being bruised for our iniquities in Mosiah chapter 14. This is again Abinadi. Abinadi chooses to try to soften 
Noah's heart and others. And the one thing that came out of all of that was that we got an Alma. Alma, one of Noah's high priests. And what affected him? What really calls people to repentance? What really calls people to repentance is to understand the atonement of Jesus Christ. And that's what Abinadi was trying to teach. That's what Jacob tried to teach to his people. That's what Nephi tried to teach to his brothers. That's what Alma tried to teach. That's what Alma the Younger tried to teach to his sons, Corianton, his wayward son. I mean, there's nothing that probably should be more taught and understood. Again, the the atonement of Jesus Christ is the root, root of Christian doctrine, and anything that doesn't touch his atonement will die. If we teach anything that doesn't point us to the atonement of Jesus Christ, it will die. So this is from uh, chapter 14, but it's really Isaiah 53, verses uh, 3 through 6. I think again of where was I, as I read this, every time I read this, I think where was I when Jesus was suffering? I, I know I was in the pre-mortal existence, but did I, did I get a peek? Did I, did I get a glimpse did, did I did I take a look and turn away? Not because I did, not because I wasn't grateful, but I just couldn't bear to watch it all. And when I read this, I think about that. Was that me? Was that me in the pre-mortal existence? Uh, anyway, verses uh, three through six of Mosiah fourteen. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. Ah. Kind of knocks the breath out of me, really, Scott. When I think of uh, all that Jesus did for me, all that he did for my family, I think sometimes, Scott, um, I'm grateful for what he did for me. But when I really, really think about it, it's kind of like I'm even more grateful what he did for my kids and what he did for my grandkids. I know he saved me. And I'm great, so, so, so grateful. But he also suffered and saved my kids, my grandkids. And he suffered for the injustices, the insults, the inequities, the all that they suffered, some of them born with my adopted son. You know, I think of all that he suffered for them and my gratitude is increased tenfold so anyway so thankful for the opportunity to discuss these sacred things and too sacred and too great to 
even begin to describe them. I hope our listeners will study them and and feel the and not just have a cognitive understanding, but come to a a witness that these things are true by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost for themselves. Thanks for being with us, everybody. As we um, go through our week this week, especially again, and and we will probably say this every Sunday, er, about every Sunday as we go through this process, especially as we focus on the events of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I hope that our sacrament experience is all that it's intended to be. And it really is kind of up to us to align ourselves with him and with these things that we've learned and taught or relearned and refelt and felt today. It's our prayer that God will bless us with his spirit, that the administration of the things that we're talking about will be alive in our lives so that we can feel the peace and joy that comes from them. Thanks for being with us, everybody. We look forward to being with you again next week, and until then, be well.